Well, how you doing? Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Um, and we're going to be um, in Mark chapter 9 today. So if you brought your Bibles, go ahead and pull them out. Turn over to Mark chapter 9. Um, here at Sedaris, we're actually working through a sermon series where we're walking through the book of Mark verse by verse. And, and what we're doing that for, and we're, we're asking the question at each point, we're, we're asking the question of who do you say that Jesus is? And we're calling this question the most important question ever asked. The most important question ever asked. And so every week, what we see is people come up to Jesus and they're trying to answer the question of who exactly is this guy? Who is this guy? And at one point, Jesus actually asked this question to his disciples. He looks at them and he says, who do you say that I am? And, and, and we think this is the most important question ever asked. And so we wanted to go through the book of Mark and answer that question each and every week because it's an answer or it's a question that, that Christians need to have asked often of them, but also our city needs to have it asked of them as well. That's why we exist at Sedaris is to help our city consider Jesus or, or help them at least have the question asked of them, who do you say that Jesus is? And ideally, we can help them answer that question too. So that's the sermon series that we're in. If, if you're new or if you are, um, yeah, if, if you're new or you've been uh, started coming here for the first time today or for the past month or so, that, that's where we're at, okay? But I want to start our, um, I want to start our time together today with a text message conversation that I had last Sunday with one of my friends. He's an old friend of mine, and I hadn't talked to him in a while, so I sent him a text and said, hey man, how you doing? And he texted me back and he said this, he said, um, I'm good, everything is fine, I'm having a lot of fun, but I'm looking for more purpose. I'm good, everything is fine, I'm having a lot of fun, but I'm looking for more purpose. And I, honestly, I hear different variations of this often as a pastor. I hear all the time uh, from people who are Christians, from people who are not Christians. I hear it all the time. Um, in fact, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had the opportunity to uh, lead 10 young professionals. Um, they, they'd come from different churches and different professions. We all get around a table each week, and we ask one question, how does faith influence our work? on a deeper level than just how do we share our faith with our coworkers, but how does our faith influence our work? And what I found was there's a version of this text message inside each of them as well. <laughs> I'm good, everything is fine, I'm having a lot of fun, but I'm looking for more purpose. It, it turned out that almost all of them over the course of the year um, admitted that they're extremely disenchanted with their jobs <laughs> and really struggling to find meaning and purpose in them, okay? And this is a, really the crisis of our time, isn't it? The, the crisis of meaning and purpose. We can look almost anywhere and see it. Um, in the career zone, it's, it's the, the crisis of, of landing your dream job only to learn that it's harder than you thought it would be. There's pieces of it that you don't like at all. The people that you work with kind of suck, right? Um, <laughs> and if you're honest, you don't want your boss's job in five to ten years. Um, attrition is at an all-time high. It's never been higher of people leaving jobs quickly. Um, Deloitte, it's an accounting firm. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. Um, there we go. Somehow they anonymously polled all their employees, and they found that 65% of them were actively searching for jobs somewhere else. That's crazy. That's crazy. 
Um, Gallup produced a study last year called How Millennials Want to Work and Live in the World. They found that 55%, that over half of us, are disengaged from our work. But at the same time, we're seeking learning and development opportunities like no generation ever before. So something doesn't add up here. We are a generation that is seeking purpose, not finding it in our jobs. I don't know if we're finding it in relationships either. There's a crisis there of purpose too. We, we, we have this social media that, that we go to and we read through um, a bunch of stories on Facebook about people that, if we're honest, we don't really care about them that much. Maybe you do. I mean, maybe you're a better person than me. Uh, you don't really care about them that much. Um, you like the posts of people who you hope to be friends with. Uh, we uh, put our own public perception on there, hoping that both a lot of people and certain people will like them. The crisis of purpose and meaning in relationship means that, that we use apps to find people to date, and we hope the algorithm figures out the right things, but doesn't match up everything with that person because we don't want to date a carbon copy of ourselves, right? Like, honestly, we're kind of bored with ourselves, right? We don't want to date another us. And, um, and yeah, if you're married, it kind of looks like asking the question, or at least coming down to it, maybe you haven't asked it out loud, but you've probably thought it of, like, is, is this the person I'm spending all my life with? Like, uh, Marriage is really hard at times, and before I was married, it seemed to be a lot easier, you know? I think we have a crisis of meaning and purpose. Why am I married? Why am I dating? Why, am I, why do I have friendships? What are they doing? I think we're looking for new things of all of us, too. I think our crisis, and, our crisis of purpose and meaning extends there as well. Um, now, this lack of, of purpose and lack of meaning it really creates an existential vacuum, is what it does in each of us. And, and this, is, um, this is not me speaking. This is, this is a quote I pulled from a guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, you can look him up later. You should definitely Google Viktor Frankl. It's Viktor with a K. Um, he's a Holocaust survivor, neurologist, psychiatrist. And in the 60s and 70s, he identified this lack of meaning, this lack of purpose as an existential vacuum out of which produced all sorts of addiction, aggression, and depression. And so it, 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 these are really big things, right? <laughs> now, don't hear me wrong. He's not saying that um, people that are aggressive, uh, addictive, and depressed, uh, that they, ne they necessarily don't have meanings. There's a lot of things that, call these three, that cause these three things. Just want to make that clear. Um, but a lack of meaning and purpose is a big contributor towards them. And it's the crisis of our time. We only need to look at the news headlines, actually, to see these three beasts rearing their ugly heads. It's everywhere. <clears throat> All right, so, so that's really, um, <laughs> so that's kind of, the, by ways of introduction here, Jesus now is going to have a conversation with his disciples in, his passage, in this passage today, in Mark chapter 9. And they're wrestling with purpose and meaning too, only they're calling it by a different name. They're calling it greatness. They're calling it greatness, okay? And in this conversation, Jesus has something to teach them and us too about how greatness, how purpose, how meaning work. And this comes out in this conversation. First, you, Jesus provides us the, the, the method out of which the greatness and the meaning, uh, how greatness and meaning work in his kingdom. Jesus will provide us the method of how greatness and meaning work in his kingdom. And then uh, in the second part of this conversation, Jesus really helps us know, um, he, he says that pursuing greatness, 
purpose and meaning in the kingdom of God is better than pursuing any other form of greatness, purpose, or meaning. So he speaks in absolutes, and that can make us a little bit uncomfortable, but stick with me, because this conversation is really, really good. It's really great, okay? So that's the flow we're going to take. We're going to unpack uh, the first part of how greatness and purpose and meaning works in the kingdom, and then we're going to see how that's preferable to any other, any other pursuit of purpose and meaning, all right? All right, cool. So pick it up with me. We are in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. Is where we're going to be. Let's set the scene. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, because they were arguing about who was the greatest. And now, let me bring up to speed with where we're at in the Jesus ministry here. Jesus had paired up his disciples, and he'd sent them out, all, out into all of Israel. He said, you guys are going to go out there, you're going to proclaim the gospel, you're going to heal people, and you're going to cast out demons. And, and they go out and they do that, and it seems that they actually have some success doing that. And now all the disciples have come back together, they're processing all, everything that happened together, and they're probably sharing their stories. Andrew and I, we healed a deaf person. James and I, we healed a paralytic uh, John and I, we preached to 500 people. Bartholomew, everybody forgets Barty. <laughs> Barty and I, we preached to 1,000 people. And now they start comparing themselves to one another. And maybe even you see Peter pipe up and be like, hey guys, like, I know like, we, we can't really compare these things because it's qualitative, but we can at least go off of Jesus' words. And he looked at me and gave me a new name. I'm the rock. And he said, on me, we, he's going to build his church, whatever that is. Like, the rest of the disciples probably looked at him and were like, you mean the same conversation he also called you Satan, bro? <laughs> he wants to build his church on you because he wants to kill you, you know? Like, that's actually what's going on. But they're arguing. They're arguing about who is greatest. And Jesus knows that they're arguing about that. He knows that they're arguing about that. And he asks them, hey, what did you guys talk about? Silence. Their consciences kind of convict them in their hearts. They're, they're, they're like, ah, shoot. He's already talked to us a couple times about not talking about that subject. And we did it again. Absolute silence. And so Jesus takes that opportunity, turns it into a teaching moment for his disciples. Look what he says in verse 35. Mark, Mark tells us, and he sat down and he called the 12. He gathers them up. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and he must be servant of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and he must be servant of all. And this is a very interesting thing. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard this said many times, that, that the greatest people among us are the people who are serving in the lowest places. The greatest uh, person that, uh, it, the greatness in the kingdom works from serving from below, not standing on stage and, and preaching and doing great public works or mighty acts like the disciples. Um, but the question is, you've probably heard it, but are you convinced that it's true? Are we convinced that greatness actually works like this, that it's actually attached to servants? And so I want to show you a story, because in the Old Testament, we have a, a host of examples of servants, 
servants in the Old Testament, and they're vastly praised throughout, which is actually very strange for ancient cultures to do, to praise servants, but it's actually a theme that's in all throughout this, the Old Testament, and even persistent of the New Testament, primarily with Christ. So I want to show you one of these stories, because it really helps us wrap our head around really just the fact that greatness is tied to serving, to servants, people who are, would be, uh, who are the last of all and the servants of all. And the story I want to point to is the story of the first servant that we have in the Old Testament. Her name's Hagar. Hagar is the servant of Sarah, who's the, the wife of Abraham. And Hagar does whatever Sarah doesn't want to do. She's a servant. So she, she makes the meals. She, um, she cleans up after the meals. She goes down to the river with all the laundry, and, and she washes the clothes. Um, she, when Sarah comes in from outside, she likely washes Sarah's feet, all the dirt, and I mean, it was an agrarian culture, so maybe even some, some uh, animal feces off of her feet. She does everything. And one day, Sarah has another thing that she needs to get done that she can't accomplish herself, and that's have a child. And so she uses Hagar, just like she always had, to accomplish that need. She says, Hagar, you go sleep with my husband and give me a child. See, the Bible's not full of heroes. It's full of broken people in need of grace. But she, and so Hagar really doesn't have a choice. She has to as a servant. She, Sarah makes her use her very body, her reproductive system, in service to her. It's an awful story. She does get pregnant, and uh, so we expect Sarah to be really happy. Instead, Sarah is extremely jealous. Treats her harshly is what the text says treats her harshly. So Hagar runs away. Hagar runs away. She's out in the wilderness, and then she encounters the angel of the Lord, and, and the angel of the Lord is, 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 was representative in Old Testament scriptures of, of a glimpse of God himself in a lot of ways. The angel of the Lord looks at her and says, Hagar, what are you doing? She says, I'm running away. He says, well, I know, but you're going to have a son I'm going to make a great, great nation out of him. Go back to your mistress. And she's just blown away. She's blown away. She's, no one's ever noticed her. No one's ever even done so much as really looked at her with any, any sort of deep meaning and purpose in her life. But now she has this huge promise that she gets to hold in her hands. She names the God that she encounters. You're the God who sees me. She, she names the place. There's a well right next to it. This is the well of the God who sees. God sees lowly servants and their acts of service. And he makes them great. This is how God works. This is how God has worked throughout all of the Holy Scriptures. This is how God works himself in person when he shows up. Jesus shows up and for 30 years he serves as a carpenter. Then he goes into his public ministry, pulls along these, this rag, ragamuffin group of disciples who really are pretty dense. I mean, right here, they're still arguing about who's the greatest, but he serves them. He likely made their meals. He likely cleaned up after the meals. He definitely washed their feet. And then he used his very body, similar to Hagar, to hang on the cross so that they could experience life in him. How do we know that greatness is attached to servants? 
because that's how it's always worked, because God is the God who sees the lowly servant in rewards. This is how it's always worked, and maybe that's what you need to hear this morning. Maybe you've been at Sedaris for a long time, and you've served, and you've served, (laughs) this is a church plant, and you serve. We don't have a lot of people, (laughs) but we have a lot to do. Serve, serve, and serve. And maybe what you need to hear today is God is the God who sees. Maybe Dave and I have forgotten to thank you. I mean, we, it keeps us up at night, even worrying about, shoot, have we thanked everybody? Do people feel appreciated? We probably haven't thanked everybody in the most appropriate ways all the time because there's so many of you doing so much. But God sees you. And there's greatness for you in store. There really is. I believe that. I believe that. Um, so, and, and, yeah. So I say that by, by means of encouragement. And then the, this is, Jesus uses this by, by way of warning for his disciples as well. And, and, he, he's, and this is also a good application for us too because there's a tendency when you've been around for a long time, you've seen it come from the grassroots to be what it is today. When new people come in alongside and they start to have energy and excitement around participating and around serving, there's a temptation to be like, yeah, but you don't know what it was like three years ago. And that's the heart of comparison, the same very heart of comparison that was in the disciples. So that's a warning for us today, an encouragement and a warning for us today. Okay, so that's the method that Jesus says. That's how greatness works in the kingdom. It comes through low acts of service. Low acts of service, and he's sitting down in this house, and he sees a little boy running around, and he says, perfect, I can illustrate for this for them right now. And he scoops up this little boy in his arms, and look what it says here. Verse 36, and he took a child and put him in the midst of them, And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he takes his child. And and, and children in in this culture are actually viewed as the lowest of people in society. Um, They were allowed to be in public. It was preferable that they weren't in public, but if they were in public, then they definitely shouldn't interrupt or or, or be heard in any significant way. And that's why we see, honestly, uh, at other points, the disciples are shooing away uh, the kids from around Jesus. And he's like, whoa, hold up. These people are the greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus is very contra to his culture in this way. And, And in the same way, Jesus scoops up this children and says, whoever welcomes or whoever receives this child receives me, and whoever receives me receives God. That's a big deal. And it's better translated welcome, and most translate, translations actually use the word welcome. It's a term of hospitality here that Jesus is using. Whoever welcomes one, one of the smallest, one of these children, the lowest of society, the lowest of culture, um, in the West, we actually are not very good at hospitality. <laughs> um, I, I've been to some of your guys' houses. You guys have treated me great. You know, this is not a judgment. Um, any of you, we walked into your guys' houses. Um, but in the West, we actually really pale in comparison to hospitality of the ancient Near East that Jesus is in, or even the modern Near East. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in Turkey myself. And when you go into people's homes, they treat you as if you are, <laughs> you are a celebrity. <laughs> They bring out their best and they bring it to you. 
They're completely engaged with you. There's no phone looking ever happening because you're in their home and they're taking care of you and they want to put their best on you all the time. And this is the attitude that Jesus is saying that, that we should have, that, that the servant has. He's illustrating this is the attitude that the servant has with the lowest. Bring our best to them. Um, we're at a really unique opportunity, a really unique time in the life of Sedaris. Um, because our children's ministry is, is growing, um, I think, I don't know, if we'd compute it, it'd be like a 700% growth in the last year. <laughs> That's a lot of growth. Uh, some of those have been organic. Some of those have been from new families coming in. Welcome, new families. We're happy to have you. Um, there's that good old organic growth, though, too. Uh, but our, our kids' ministry is growing by leaps and bounds, and... Um, we're starting, to have, we're starting to try to respond to that because this is a very opportunity to welcome children into our midst, which is the same as welcoming God the Father. It's an incredible opportunity that we have. And so we have lots of opportunities for even you guys. Uh, if you want to hold babies, we're going to have to have a, a baby-holding class soon. We're, trying to, we're on that. We're trying to figure it out. Uh, we need people to wrangle toddlers. Uh, there's an opportunity to welcome God into our midst by wrangling toddlers and teaching the gospel to elementary school kids. Um, so there's going to be more about that coming up in the upcoming weeks, but you can get on that right now. On a clipboard near you, there's a connect card. Just write your name and check a box. There's a box in there about children somewhere. Say, like, I want to know more about the children's ministry. Drop that in the offering box. Offering box. Offering basket after the service. Okay, we, we can start welcoming God into our midst now because Jesus says when we do that, it's like as if we welcome God. It's as if we encounter God like like in your prayer life when you're praying or when you're reading the Bible and then all of a sudden just God shows up. God shows up and he's there. He's there. It's so sweet and it's so beautiful. Jesus says, that's what serving's like. It may not always feel like that. Honestly, it, it may feel a lot like wrangling toddlers for an hour and a half. <laughs> but it's actually, it is happening. There's a reality there that's happening. There's also a more organic application for this, isn't it? Isn't there? How are we serving one another? How are we serving one another as the body of Christ? I see us serving each other really well in a lot of awesome ways. But when we serve each other in a form, Paul says in, in Romans 12, which we'll see a little bit later, uh, he says, make every effort to outdo one another in your acts of service. Like it's a friendly competition of sorts. When that starts happening and people are serving one another, new people come in and they see that. The city uh, can see that in from the outside and all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, God is in that place. I want to be a part of that. Seek to outdo each other in your acts of service. All right. So that, that's the first part of, of our, our talk today, of Jesus' conversation that outlines this is how greatness, purpose, and meaning actually work in the kingdom of God, okay? And now one of his disciples, John, is going to ask him a question, and that question is going to uncover more of that ugly seed that we saw in the disciples' hearts um, where they were comparing who was the greatest and that question is going to uncover it. And so Jesus is, is going to have the opportunity to tout kingdom greatness above personal greatness. Kingdom purposes above personal purposes. Okay, pick it up in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Emphasis on the us there. 
I wish we had more details about what was actually happening here, but you can envision John and one or two or maybe all the disciples. They're, they're just walking around and they see some guy that's casting demons out of people in the name of Jesus. And they go up and they run over to him and say, hey, hold up, hold up, hold up. Don't do that. Only we can do that. You see, what, what, what happened was they saw someone else who they had to contend for greatness with. And they try to shut it down. They try to shut it down. It's remarkable. And Jesus responds, verse 39, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus' response is, hey, this guy is on our team. It's great. This is great that he's out there doing that. This unofficial disciple of Jesus, this is great that he's out there doing that. Who is this guy? It's a little bit strange, right? But he's likely somebody who has heard the gospel of Jesus preached, either from Jesus or by his disciples, believed in it, put his faith in Jesus and recognize that one of the first steps in, in bringing the kingdom of God to earth is by casting Satan's uh, minions and, and demons out of it. And, and I think he really does have true faith. In the book of Acts, we have an example of some people. They, they, they see the disciples casting demons out of people and, and they try to do it themselves when they encounter a guy that has a demon. And the guy looks at him recognizes that they're actually not united to Jesus in faith, and so they have zero power. And he actually lays an intense whooping on them. They all run out of the house um, naked, it says. <laughs> and so this guy here has faith in Jesus, and the disciples try to shut it down. Their personal greatness was working against the kingdom greatness in somebody else. And so Jesus actually continues like this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is spicy language, right? This is really spicy language from Jesus here. But remember, he starts off with this phrase, whoever causes one of these little ones. He's still holding the little boy. You see that? He's still holding the little boy. And I love this imagery of Jesus. He's, at the, he's, he's tender. He's fierce. He's both at the same. He's kind of like my shirt right now, this, this blue, green, gray. Typical Seattle colors, you know? Can't think of a different color combo for sports teams. You know, like, I think this is all the sports teams, right? Um, <laughs> But he's tender, he's fierce. He cares for us as, as our priest, as our shepherd. He's deeply invested in, in making sure that we can flourish and thrive in this world. But then he's also fierce as a prophet to keep his people faithful to him. And this is because he's hoping to bring about a kingdom where the subjects within it are cared for, but they're also functioning so that they don't take advantage of others. 
And this imagery is, is pretty crazy, but it's not actually originating in the mind of Jesus. Uh, don't think Jesus is this guy who thinks up really strange executions, okay? <laughs> this isn't actually originating in his mind. This is how the Romans would often kill insurrectionists of the kingdom. In fact, we've actually uncovered um, old, like old history texts that weren't books, but they're on scrolls that recounted this very activity happening on the Sea of Galilee around the time of Jesus. Around the time of Jesus. All right, so, so Jesus is actually very up-to-date on his news. He's very relevant. He reads the news. He knows what's going on. And he says there's insurrection happening amongst his disciples. Their personal greatness and pursuit of purpose and meaning in the world is competing against the kingdom's greatness, and the purpose and meaning that the kingdom ascribes to them in this world. This is a big deal. This is a really, really big deal. And this idea of pursuing our personal greatness is something that all of us really have done at points in our lives over over the greatness of the kingdom and seeking to make our own purpose and meaning apart from God is the most base and fundamental definition of sin. And so uh, this may be a huge thing to you. You may be like, whoa, Jesus is kind of going over the top here. And so I want to bring us back to the foundation of where, um, where that comes from. This is in Genesis 3. We have it on a slide. We'll throw it up here for you. Genesis 3. Um, yeah, here we go. Uh, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was of a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth, loincloths. You see what, what that says right there? It was to be desired to make one wise. Now, now don't get, con- get hung up on, on the, the imagery here, whether you think it was like a real tree or why would God like care what fruit we eat from trees. That's not what is primarily is being communicated here. What's being communicated here is that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to pursue greatness purpose, and meaning apart from God. And they agree. And they agree. They say, okay, yeah, let's do that. Let's get, let's start doing that. That sounds great. I could be wise on my own without having to go to God for wisdom. Perfect. And everything immediately starts to fall apart for them. The eyes of both were opened. This is how we know they've sinned and they knew that they were naked. The, the, the most intimate, beautiful relationship on earth that God created, 
the marriage relationship that's supposed to be marked by, by wonderful joy and intimacy is now going to be marked from here on out by hiding and deception. This is sin in its most base form. When humanity seeks to achieve uh, greatness, define its own purposes, define our own meaning in the world. <clears throat> And this is a, our, so this is our, our pursuit of our own greatness. Uh, everybody has done this. The question is, does it actually work in light of a culture and a society that finds itself largely doing this on our own, but in a crisis of purpose and meaning? And I don't, I don't, we can't really say that it does. We can think, we can go to examples where we, we can look at people who have achieved what we think to be everything, everything, and they feel this crisis of meaninglessness and purposelessness and directionlessness. Sorry, guys, those are, I'm sure those words are wrong. But they feel it there. <laughs> but they feel it. They feel it. This is a quote from Tom Brady after he won three Super Bowls, won three full Super Bowls in 2009, okay? He said this, I'm making more money now than I ever thought I could make. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me? A lot of people would say this is what it is. I've reached my goal, my dream in life. Me, I think, God, it's gotta be more than this. And he actually said that more emphatically than I just did. And the, the interviewer asks him, what's the answer? And Tom responded, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Even people who seem to be the most successful, achieving all of their goals, all their own purposes, all their own meaning in life, can feel as if they aren't accomplishing greatness. That's the reality of it. And you know what? It's not just on the large scale. It's on the small micro scale as well. It's everywhere. Never before have we had more success in this world. Never before have we had nicer cars, nicer things, nicer homes. Never before have we been able to consume so much entertainment. Never before, never before have, have we been able to, to have so much automated for us and do so little work. I mean, how much are you on Facebook every day? I mean, let's be honest. But never before have we been able, have we had more success in life, but we're still finding ourselves at this crossroads of meaning, meaningless and, and, and purposelessness. We're still there. <clears throat> well, maybe that's you, and you're here today, and the question is, have you considered Jesus? Have you considered that Jesus might have a different purpose, a different meaning to pursue that you haven't defined by yourself that could bring you greatness, bring you meaning, bring you purpose in life? Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you would say, you know what, I'm kind of in that crisis of purposelessness as well. I'm starting to see addiction come out. I'm starting to see aggression come out. I'm starting to see depression come out. Maybe this is a call back to ask yourself, what am I actually leaning on for my purpose and meaning in life? Where am I looking for that to be defined? Is it myself or is it God? Now, it, this doesn't mean quitting your job. 
to start looking to God to define your purpose. It doesn't look like quitting your job um, and being working for the church. That would be too easy. Only some of us get to do that, I guess. Um, it doesn't mean quitting your job, but it means looking at all of the things that God has given you in life, every, all really the power that you have and turning it over to God and asking him, how would you use this for your kingdom purposes and meaning God? To do the same with your relationships. How would you use this for your kingdom purposes, God? And right there, that's when we can start to find incredible, incredible meaning. You see, when we try to do it ourselves, it actually can't work. It's not that we just tried to pursue our own meaning and our own purposes in the wrong way. It's actually, it can't work because that's not how creation was created to function altogether. No matter how hard we try to pursue our own meaning and our own purpose, in the end, we're going to feel like we haven't achieved that greatness for which we were created to do. So it can't work. All right, and so Jesus actually goes on in this conversation after his execution example here in verse 43, okay? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Remember, he's holding a kid. He's talking about hell holding a kid. This is really, really spicy language from Jesus. It's the only time he talks about hell in the Gospel of Mark. It's actually represented throughout the other Gospels a lot, but the only time that Mark shows him talking about it. (laughs) And Jesus is looking at his disciples, the ones who just caused an insurrection, a small example of an insurrection in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, hey, whatever is in you that is tempting you to pursue your own greatness instead of the greatness of God, cut it off. Get rid of it. Because not only is it not going to work now, there's an eternal reality called hell that it ends up in. Now, this is a very difficult uncomfortable subject to talk about, isn't it? Hell. At least I've been nervous in my prep to discuss it this week. I mean, this is, this is a, a big topic. Let, let's, not, let's not pretend like it's not. This is a big topic. And it's difficult to talk about because we all have hearts, right? We all have hearts. When we start talking about hell, we start thinking about people who we've known that perhaps have passed away not as Christians. We think about people that we, we know in our life right now that aren't Christians, We think of people even who we don't know that aren't Christians. We have hearts of compassion for them. We have hearts of compassion. And so we really have three options uh, when it comes to this doctrine of hell when we're confronted with it. Uh, First, we can explain away hell as a metaphor. Uh, The second thing we can do is say, well, yeah, hell is a real place, but, but no one ends up going there. Or third, We can have our compassion, recognize it as a reality, and throw us into the kingdom work, meaning, and purposes of trying to help people avoid it. Those are really the three options. I've racked my brain over. I don't know if there's any more options than those three. 
And I think we have to do the third, and this is why. Um, Jesus talks about hell a lot in the four Gospels. He talks about it more than all of the other biblical authors combined. Combined. He talks about it a lot. He talks about it as if it's a real place. He talks about it as if people will be there while holding children even. He talks about it a lot. And so I think that we have to acknowledge the reality of hell just like we acknowledge the reality of the ocean. And when we we see someone drowning in the reality of the ocean, we don't explain it away and 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 say the ocean is just a metaphor. We jump into the reality of the ocean with that person in the hopes to help them come out. This is the reality of hell. Our compassion should compel us to participate in rescue. Now, Jesus' description of hell is very interesting here at this point. Um, The word uh, hell in your Bibles is actually translated from a word Gehenna. And Gehenna isn't Greek. Uh, It's actually a name of a place. It was the dump that was just right outside of Jerusalem. It was actually a valley on the southwest corner of Jerusalem. And for hundreds of years, uh, everybody that lived in the city of Jerusalem would take their garbage out there and they would burn it. They would burn their garbage in this Gehenna, this, this valley. And by the time of Jesus' day, it came to be known as the place for, for those who have rejected God's way in their life in this lifetime. And so Jesus is picking up on this common notion that was, that was a very Jewish, widely accepted in Jewish culture notion, and he's adding imagery to it. It's a place of fire, he says, unquenchable fire. It's a place where the worm uh, is consumed but does not die. And and, in other places, he's going to talk about it. uh, In the Gospels, he talks about it as complete darkness. Um, And these are just all very, these are metaphorical phrases that he's using to describe hell. Now, that's different than saying that hell is a metaphor for something. He's He's just using physical language to describe spiritual realities. And when that happens, that language actually falls short of what that spiritual reality is in some way. And, and so what does fire and darkness actually mean? Well, darkness really refers to, to the absence and loneliness that comes from God himself. This is a place where God is not there. And fire is a place, and fire is something that represents um, consumption or spiritual, decomp- spiritual and physical decomposition of some sort. And so it's helpful to imagine hell if you think of you on your worst day. Think of yourself on your worst day, your most irritable, your most self-loathing, um, your, your most tired, your most lonely, your most uh, critical, your most angry, your most frustrated. Take that as a starting point. It, it, hell is a place where that, those experiences get worse and worse and worse and further and further and further into eternity. That's hell. Now, that's an awful thing, right? That's an awful, awful thing. And it doesn't seem fair. Like, how, how, can we send, how can God send people there in this life for not doing a very kind of like trite things? Like, even like something as trite as just accepting Christianity. How can we ascribe people to go to this place? It doesn't seem fair, right? But this is really... Um, 
a, a full biblical understanding of hell actually goes more a little bit like this. Hell is a place where people run to themselves because they don't want God's greatness, kingdom purposes in their life. They want to continue pursuing their own like Adam and Eve did, like you and I do. We want to continue pursuing those. And so hell is actually a prison cell that we run into. We slam the door behind us to keep God out and we lock it from the inside. We don't want to work for God's greatness. We don't want his purposes. We don't want his meaning in our life. We lock him out. And after a lifetime of inviting us out, providing us opportunities to come out, God locks it from the outside. And it's unclear as to whether we ever have the, 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 the wherewithal in our spiritual decomposition to ever try to unlock it from the inside again. This is a, a, a biblical understanding of hell that's held by very um, trusted uh, theologians. Uh, C.S. Lewis would be one of them. This is a very historically orthodox view of what hell is, and it's faithful to the scriptures. So it, it's a real place, and no one that is in hell has put themselves there, or hasn't put themselves there, and hasn't stayed there themselves. That's what hell is. But here is what's at stake. We can't throw out the doctrine of hell. We can't get rid of this doctrine of hell, although we'd love to because it seems so unloving on the surface, right? We can't get rid of it. We can't get rid of it because of what happened on the cross. Um, on the cross, I mean, we, we see Jesus getting beaten. We see uh, Jesus... Uh, getting whipped. We see him with the crown of thorns. We see like nails through his hands, nails through his feet, hanging on the cross for hours and hours upon end. And all of this is just a mosquito bite compared to what's actually taking place in his soul on the cross. At one point he cries out and it seems to be in utter, utter panic. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a huge, huge, huge loss for Jesus that we actually can't even fathom in and of ourselves because of the relationship that he had. Think of relationships that you've lost in your life. Um, think of an acquaintance that you made that you lost. There's not much hurt there when you lose that, right? Um, think of a, a dating relationship that you've had before that you've lost and the pain that you probably experienced from being separated from that person. Uh, some people can, can say that, that, you know what, I lost my marriage and that pain is unparalleled. Losing family members, when family members reject you, that can be a deep, deep pain. But Jesus's relationship with the Father didn't even have a beginning. That's how long it was. It was, an, it was a relationship of perfect intimacy. They were on the same page about everything all the time and each other's fellowships. And all of a sudden, he's hanging there on the cross and he finds himself in that prison cell and he didn't put himself there. And he looks out the door and he didn't lock it, but it's been shut and it's been locked from the outside. Jesus experienced hell on the cross for us. And if we attempt, in our attempt to get rid of hell, to make God more loving, what we've done is we've ironically made him less loving. God is a God who will go to hell 
There's no telling how deep and fiery that furnace, that spiritual decomposition was for Jesus on the cross. God is a God who will experience that so that he can be with us. So that he can redeem and bring back the people who have thrown off the pursuit of his greatness again. That's the beauty of God. The doctrine of hell shows us the unmeasurable graces and love of God. And so we don't get rid of it here at Sedaris Church. We hold on to it. We say it's really hard to stomach. But if you're willing to do some consideration with it, at the end of it, we think you're going to find the grace and the love of God are unmeasurable and unmatched and even experience it in your own life. And that's why we hold on to it here. So who is Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus is the son of God that experienced hell for us so that we could be united to him once more. He went through all of the depths of hell so that we we could find true meaning and true purpose. He was locked into the prison cell so that we could unlock our own while we still can come out in this world and pursue the meaning and purpose of God. That's who Jesus is. And Jesus wraps up his conversation like this, okay? In verse 49 with his disciples, he says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Um, It's a very strange way to end a conversation. Uh, Talking about salt, just throwing a lot of salt there, you know? Um, But it's actually, I want to show you, it's a really actually reasonable way to close up this conversation. Very, very reasonable. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Um, And and, in this way, he's alluding to the fact that there's going to be a time where everyone's going to be tested as if you're throwing salt out over, uh, over all of creation, as if God is throwing salt out over all of creation. Everyone's going to be tested to see which kind of greatness they're pursuing. It, it, it matches up with how Jesus has been talking about eternal states. Everyone's going to be tested to see which side you fall on. <clears throat> and, and then he goes on and uh, he says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, be at peace with one another. And I don't have time to show you this, but, but he's using the language of sacrifice, actually, from the Old Testament. Um, a lot of the Old Testament sacrifices were heavily salted, Um, before they were sacrificed. And he's actually reminding the disciples that there's sacrifices to the kingdom of God, to God. There's sacrifices to God himself. And, And when there's sacrifices to God's greatness and they receive the meaning and the purpose of God, they're all pulling in the same direction again and they can be at peace with one another. And now we've ended right where we've started. They were arguing with one another about who is the greatest. By the end, when they remember that there are sacrifices of, of, for God, they can be at peace with one another. And this is a, a notion that Christians are sacrifices for God and that they are to be at peace with one another that, that run like this in the whole New Testament. When you see one, the other one's always lurking close by and we have an example. I'm gonna, by way of closing, I'm going to show you an example of that here in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as, as, a, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's a sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you, you may discern, that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See how there's a check of your own personal greatness here? For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And this is why, this is, here we have the loving one another at the end. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor or in showing service to one another. And so at the end of the day, what we want to do is we all want to look to God and ask him for what greatness is so that we can find purpose and meaning and by so doing, avoid these, these things that are crouching at the door in our society that'll take us and will ruin our walk with God. Aggression, addiction, depression. They're, they're lurking for anybody that, don't, that doesn't have purpose and meaning. We look to God for him and his purposes. All right? All right, pray with me. Father, I thank you for, um, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that you're a God that would brave the depths of hell for us, people who have rebelled against you. And it doesn't seem fair, God. It doesn't seem fair that we should be able to stand in your presence, that, that, that you would give up the most beautiful relationship that you ever had for a relationship that spits in your face, Lord. And so right now, I pray that we would lean into that intense forgiveness, that intense grace, the, the scandal of grace, Lord, that we would feel that and it would help us in our quest um, for your greatness and not our own. May that move us to lay aside our own pursuit of greatness that honestly isn't working and honestly leads to hell. For yours, which will give us life, meaning, and purpose now, and forevermore. So we pray all this. Thank you for my friends here. If they're considering, Lord, I just pray um, that you would give them someone to ask their questions to. Maybe they could even ask their questions of you, but I pray that they would reach out to somebody here today and say, hey, I have questions about this. Can you get a cup of coffee with me? Can you go to lunch with me? God, I pray that you would help people consider more about your son and what he accomplished on the cross. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.